Before we get started, I have some exciting news to share, and that's the announcement of the latest release from Standard Age, the Defender Watch Box. A project two years in the making, this box does far more than hold some watches and attract dust on top of your dresser. Made from a 50 caliber ammo can and named after one of my favorite vehicles from Land Rover, the Defender Watch Box houses eight of your favorite timepieces. With its handle on top, the box serves as an incredibly unique storage solution, as well as carrying case to your local watch meetup, your next road trip, or perhaps even a flight. Inside, you'll find two poplar wood trays lined with the same plush Alcantara suede found in most GT-level Porsches and supercars alike. Under the lid is a padded panel with diamond pattern stitching, which took cues from the seat inserts of the Mercedes G-Wagon and the Koenigsegg Agera R. The Defender watch box features these details thanks to artisans in Florence, Italy, making them by hand and assembled by me here in San Diego. On the outside, you'll find the subtle placement of a Standard 8 Shift logo medallion made from antiqued white bronze made in the age-old lost wax tradition of jewelry making. Each box is then placed in its own wooden crate that I build and paint in my garage, which are then lined with custom-cut foam pieces to ensure your box is protected during shipment. Available in three iterations, the Defender Watch Box comes in Stealth, which is a black box with gray interior and a hand-polished logo medallion. There's also an OD green option with a cognac brown interior featuring a more weathered, antiqued medallion. For every OD green box sold, 10% of the purchase will be donated to our new partner, Heart and Armor, which is a nonprofit organization catering to veterans' health. Lastly, the third option is what's called Omakase. You and I will exchange emails while I learn a bit more about you and make a box specific to you. These are made to order, so visit standard-h.com for details, as well as peruse the many other products on the site. As always, thank you so much for supporting Standard H. I was introduced to today's guest, probably like many of you, by way of Hodinkee's Talking Watches. He captivated me by way of his diverse collection, and perhaps more importantly, the condition of said pieces. Extremely well known for his expertise in Rolex, Eric Koo is a watch dealer, the founder of 10past10.com, and in 2016 he co-founded LA Watchworks. Oh yeah, between those two ventures, Eric just so happened to acquire the vintage Rolex for him. What's great is he took it over to satisfy one goal, and that's to ensure it remains the incredible resource it always has been for those getting into vintage. Needless to say, Eric's a wealth of knowledge, and like many of us into watches, he's also into iconic cars. More specifically, Eric is restoring an early model of perhaps the iconic sports car. Eric also shares a bit about his latest venture, Loop This, so definitely stick around for that. I'm your host, Wesley Smith. And you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Mr. Eric Koo, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to be on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, Like many, I was introduced to you by way of Hodinkee's Talking Watches some six plus years ago, I guess. Um, But I wanted to rewind. Where were you born? Uh, I was born in Washington, D.C. That's where I'm originally from. Cool. Maryland. I, I grew up in Maryland. Uh, I was born at Sibley Hospital in D.C. And, um, yeah, I first 18 years of my life I spent in, uh, in Maryland. So you're an Orioles fan? I am an Orioles fan. Yeah. 
I used to go to those games a lot being uh, a North Carolina guy. Uh, Camden Yards was the closest pro team, you know? Or, yeah, or... yeah. I mean, I actually, um, I got into baseball, I think around 80, 1988, which was a historically bad season for the Orioles, where I think they started 0-23. It was a record. And uh, I remember sitting in the, in the, uh, the bleachers at uh, Memorial Stadium, which were just long aluminum benches that would burn your ass when you sit on them on a hot day. Yeah, totally. And then in, I think, 89 or 91, I forget which one, but then that's when Camden Yards opened and it was amazing. I mean, that's still one of the benchmarks, in my opinion, of uh, you know what a major league stadium should be like. It's kind of the archetype of what all modern stadiums are, are, are designed after, I think, you know. Yeah, if and if I'm not mistaken, I think it was the same architecture firm that did it. They also did the Durham Bulls Athletic Park in Durham. Yeah, yeah, same, exactly. Same architecture. Yeah, they were great. I mean, that was really, I think the that was the beginning of that trend of making new by respecting old and having a lot of like kind of vintage touches to it, a lot of brick and uh, brass or whatever. So like you know, that's a it was a really well made. I mean, the park is still beautiful now. You know. Yeah, totally. I just remember Griffey, I think, hitting it off that wall, off the, uh, was it the old warehouse or something out? Cowl wall or whatever, that area, yeah. like yeah. barbecue is or something. Yeah. yeah, I remember that. Oh man, there's just iconic moments there at Camden Yards. It's fantastic. What um, what did your parents do for work? Um, so my mom worked for, um, started out, it was uh, Bell Atlantic. Previous to Bell Atlantic, I, I mean, it was like, 9x whatever the phone monopoly ma bell right then it got broke up broken up and then it turned into bell atlantic and then verizon um she worked there for i think 40 years you know <laughs> retired not too long ago oh wow and my dad was uh in the construction business he had a, a general contracting and uh design firm and uh built houses and commercial projects Oh, sweet. So primarily around the Baltimore area and D.C.? Uh, actually, no, yeah, I grew up in um, in Potomac, which is closer to D.C. So it. it's in like that D.C. area. Gotcha. Um, well, if I'm not mistaken, your dad showed you the difference between a quartz watch and a mechanical watch fairly early, correct? Yes. So what what was the watch that your dad wore most when you were a kid? You know, like uh, the first Rolex I remember him wearing was a steel air king. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. It was funny because um, uh, being involved in construction and, you know, building and whatnot, it's like a pretty hands-on job. And I remember that watch was like completely beat to hell, like paint speckle everywhere. And, you know, the crystal, you could barely read the thing. And uh, later on, I restored the watch for him and, uh, you know, he, he enjoys it still now. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, well, I'm sure we'll get to LA Watchworks here momentarily, but, uh, what, so what kind of music were you into in high school? Let's see in high school. Uh, it was kind of weird stuff. Like, uh, I don't know if you remember this band better than Ezra. Yeah, of course. I was really into better than Ezra. I was really into, I guess, high school. I was really into Oasis. Yeah. But I liked a lot of different kind of music. So I listened to that. I listened to some like hip hop stuff, you know, that was uh, during the golden age of rap with uh, all the uh, the Biggie and Tupac kind of hits were all from around that time. Yeah, totally. Were you more skewed to East Coast or West Coast? 
you know, I didn't pick a uh, side in that fight, so I listened. <laughs> <laughs> Diplomatic, I like it. I was kind of the same way. I always thought that like Tupac had better lyrics at times, whereas Biggie always had better beats. Yeah, I mean, you know, like Biggie has that like really mesmer mesmerizing flow. You know, like you could like kind of just chill out. I didn't smoke pot in high school, but I imagined you could just smoke a bunch of pot and just like chill out and like <laughs> listen to his music. It was just like very relaxing, you know? Yeah, totally. He has a, uh, or there is a new documentary, I think on Netflix. It's, it's good. You should watch it if you haven't seen it. Dude, so I, I shit you not. Like my TV is paused right now. I was literally watching this right before this. It's <laughs> in. See, Biggie, I got a story to tell. Featuring yeah. their footage and in-depth interviews. I'm not joking. <laughs> that's I was amazing. Just watching this up until a couple minutes ago. Oh man, that's hysterical. So, um, where did you end up going to college? I went to school at uh, Berkeley, which is how I ended up in California. I, I see. stayed in the Bay Area um, after college. Came out here in 1997, and uh, you know, just kind of loved California and never went home. So. Yeah, it's crazy. You and I are the same age. And I think back then, if not still, I think Cal Berkeley was like number one in the nation for public schools. So. Yeah, number one public school, like blah, 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 all that stuff. I yeah, mean, it, I think... it was kind of interesting. Like I had a choice of a few schools. Um, Berkeley was kind of a last minute decision for me um, because California, when I came out and visited the campus, I just loved California. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, I think it still is, but they made it so difficult for out-of-state students to get in at that time. And, um, you know, it was uh, it was an achievement, certainly, for me. I was, like, really proud of getting in, and, you know, um, I had a great experience there. Oh, that's awesome. I think, yeah, I think it was, like, Berkeley, and then I always, I think UVA was, like, number two or something like that. Yeah, Did Berkeley, you... UVA, uh, UCLA, yeah. um, you know, um, Michigan. Ann Arbor, like these are all like, I think the top public schools and they probably are still now, but yeah, the ones I remember. What did you end up majoring in? So I came in undeclared and then I ended up um, finishing up uh, with um, a degree in like political economics. Oh, interesting. Uh, it's called like PEIS, which is uh, a political economics of industrialized society slash like I did kind of like um this um, self-designed like major, but it was basically political economics. Oh, interesting. Yeah, interdisciplinary studies, whatever. Okay, so what so what did that result in getting out of college? What was your first job? First job was um, doing like internet stuff. I worked at like a startup off. I, I literally never used any of the things from my degree in, in my professional career. You know, I started out working at a at a startup called Liquid Price, which is like a dot com company. Um, you know, and um, yeah, that's uh, that, like I lived that really stereotypical life in the Bay Area of just working in tech and startups. Right, right. Well, then eventually you started Ten Past Ten, right? Like yeah. a couple of years later. That well, I mean, it was a little. It was a ways later, but that was around two thousand five, I think. The numbers okay. are all blur right now, but I remember it was around 2005. So what was the impetus behind that? I loved watches since I was in college. And, um, you know, I was kind of doing a little trading here and there. And then there was literally this moment that I had where I was sitting in my office 
And then like the FedEx guy came and brought, I don't know, five or six boxes with watches inside. And then I was just like, what the hell am I doing here? So then I went that afternoon and just resigned and then uh, rented out an office and never looked back. Oh, no kidding. So you got your own office on day one. Yeah. Right into overhead. <laughs> right into overhead, yeah. <laughs> it was a cheap office. I think it was like eight or 900 bucks a month. So. Right. Oh, and cool. then I, uh, I don't know how familiar you are with the Bay Area, but I always lived in the East Bay. And then I had worked in the South Bay. So I had these monster commutes that could be like an hour and a half each way. Sure. My first office uh, was in San Mateo, which is across, um, across like near the San Francisco airport. And man, I mean, that was like a brutal thing. Like the drive, I don't know why the hell I chose that area just because it was nice, you know, but my drive could be like a round trip commute could be three hours a day. Oh, right. Yeah. And you, you couldn't take the train across the water? No, I mean, like, I mean, you kind of could, but it just wasn't practical. I mean, right, right. Yeah, I think San Mateo's famous. That's where Tom Brady's from, right? It is where Tom Brady's from. Yeah. Well, that's cool. So after 10 past 10, you eventually kind of navigated your ways and bought the vintage Rolex forum. Uh, vintage Rolex forum is one that is, it's like a forum dedicated to discussing like specifically vintage Rolex. Sure. Um, Rolex forums uh, certainly has like a lot bigger uh, user base, but it's also like more all encompassing and there's kind of like a social element, you know, and there's like a lot of things going on. Uh, vintage Rolex forum was more kind of like geeky, if you will. It's specifically about vintage Rolex. Right. And, um, you know, that was something started, I think, in 1999. And it kind of became the de facto brain trust of like the vintage Rolex world. It's one of those things like, you know, at the time, people always asked, like, if there was some sort of a commercial reason why I took it over or whatever. And, you know, really, for me, it's just about uh, it being a treasure trove of information for people. And that I just wanted to make sure that it was something that was always there and available for people to use, you know? Oh, that's cool. It wasn't really like a commercial endeavor. I mean, I've never made a cent on it, you know? Oh, really? So you're not like, there's no ads or anything on there that people... No ads. I mean, like uh, the platform switched to this other one a few years ago that has some ads that pop up. And um, there's a button on there that's kind of like, hey, you know, donate uh, if you want to. But none of that money like goes into my pocket. In fact, I've never seen any of that. And there's not that much, but basically that goes to pay for uh, ad-free browsing for the, for the uh, users, you know? Oh, interesting. Cool. So do you have a partner with that then? Or is it just you? No, I mean, kind of like, you know, we have a few like moderators, friends of mine that are kind of like uh, patrolling around and, um, you know, but there's, like I said, uh, there's no commercial intent on the thing. So, you know, it's just kind of one of those things that we just do at our pleasure, you know? That's really nice. Um, We alluded to it a moment ago with LA Watchworks restoring your dad's piece. How did that come about? Your partner, I guess... Your partner's name is Bo, right? Yeah, yeah. So actually, I'll say that uh, I uh, fixed up my dad's watch way before LA Watchworks came into the picture. Okay. So they weren't the ones that do it, but obviously they've subsequently serviced all of my watches and, you know, my dad's watches and whatever. Um, sure. But, you know, I had a interesting opportunity um, several years ago. Um, I met Bo and um, there was a previous... Um, you know, watchmaking business that uh, 
he was uh, working at and, you know, things were kind of winding down there. And, um, you know, I thought of it as like a good business opportunity for both of us. And, um, you know, we made a partnership and opened LA Watchworks. I think it's been like three or four years right now. Um, and, you know, it's been a really great thing just for the fact that obviously I can service my own pieces or whatever, but, you know, I truly believe that the work that they do is, is world-class and, um, you know, it's just, I think we do the best work there. Uh, we do the best work. So it was something that, uh, really was, I was very proud of being able to be a part of that and uh, being able to work with Bo and the rest of the team there, you know. And so Bo is local to, because it's located in Pasadena, right? Yeah, so um, LA Watchworks is located in Pasadena. Uh, most of the guys kind of like live around that area. Um, certainly I'm in the Bay Area. Um, you know, I go down like a couple times a year. Um, I used to spend summers down there until COVID kind of like changed everything. Sure. So hopefully I'll be able to resume and do that sometime again. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, they're quite busy. Um, a lot of people use our services, um, but the quality and standard of work that they do is always quite high. Yeah. And so basically what they specialize or what LA Watchworks specializes in is restoration and servicing, right? Is there any other component to the business? Yeah. I mean, you know, restoration and servicing basically is pretty all encompassing. Um, you know, uh, value add that I feel like I'm not a watchmaker. So, you know, I can't, um, I can't recut a case. I can't do anything. And every time I play watchmaker, I always end up screwing something up. So I know enough not to try to do it myself. Um, but one of the things like, you know, my whole, the part of it is obviously I deal in vintage watches and I have access to a lot of things and um parts are impossible to find these days right i've been very successful with sourcing original rolex parts uh on the secondary market and um being able to provide those to the team there to use to restore people's watches so how did you go about hiring the people that are working there were they like formerly employees of xyz yeah so like some of them had worked with Bo for a while and then you know over the years we've just kind of like picked up qualified watchmakers too um the one thing that i feel really fortunate about is you know when you're setting up like a business as you probably know i mean it's really important that everybody gets along right i feel like we have like a really tight team that uh gets along very well and our friends kind of like outside of work too. There's no real like friction there. And also, you know, I would love to have 10, 20 watchmakers there, but the truth is, is that uh, there's just not that many qualified candidates out there. And so, you know, I'm always looking to hire, Bo's always looking to hire, but it takes time to like find the right people to be able to join the team. Sure. Which is why like, uh, you know, it grows kind of slow. What is the pricing structure like in something like that? I fortunately have not had to repair many watches of mine. So when you go somewhere like LA Watchworks versus if I were to send it back to say Rolex proper, what, I mean, is there like an MSRP type of thing or are there price differentials? I mean, you know, we certainly price things uh, cheaper than, you know, taking it back to the manufacturer. But, um, you know, I... There is like a certain, um, there's a certain range of prices. 
and I apologize. Like I'm not on the pulse of like, I can't quote you right now exactly what that is. That's but okay. depending on how old the movement is, like for example, um, 1570 movements, which power all the plastic crystal stuff that we all love to collect, those parts are not available for Rolex at all anymore. And because of that, you know, um, those are a little more expensive to service than, you know, some of the later subsequent uh, movements. So, you know, uh, pricing is based on that. And then also for the cosmetic repairs, depending on how uh, invasive of a uh, thing that you need done, I mean, the pricing can vary significantly too, you know? Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. How do you go about marketing LA Watchworks and, and 10 past 10? Are there any differences between them or like, is there any marketing? Is it, is it all just word of mouth? It's basically all word of mouth. I've never spent like, I don't want to say never, but I can't recall spending any money on some sort of advertising campaign or things like that. You know, um, we've gotten, um, we've gotten a lot of, we've been fortunate that we've gotten a lot of like press from people and, um, you know, people talking about them on forums, on Instagram and whatever, and things have all kind of grown organically. Um, it's kind of interesting with regards specifically to LA Watchworks, you know, I'd always thought about, Hey, I had all these ideas for like marketing things or whatever, but you know, uh, our reputation has carried us quite far and keeps us really busy. So like, I didn't want to like add uh, gasoline on the fire and just do all this marketing stuff and find out we can't, um, we can't meet uh, our obligations, you know? Sure. Yeah. That's a positive problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you're famously in the Rolex arena, obviously, but you're equally a longtime collector of what's been super hot as of late. Obviously, that's Cartier. Um, um, what drew you into that brand initially? I mean, Cartier to me is all about design. You know, whereas people collect, for example, uh, Patek Philippe for the quality of the movements, the complications and things like that. Sure. Uh, Cartier is, in my mind, purely a design-driven brand. And I think a lot of times people... Um, forget that, you know, your first impression of a watch is from its design and not necessarily by the type of movement, whether it's an in-house movement or whatever. So, you know, good design is a really important feature and that's what drew me to the brand. Yeah, totally. I've always been kind of aesthetically driven, even in just my own collecting. Um, and so I completely identify with that hundred percent. Uh, plus, it's it's a good balance with Rolex, too, because, you know, Rolex is so almost tool watch. And then you've got like this design based watch for design's sake. I just feel like it's a nice little balance between the two. I mean, I've said in like uh, a lot of like, I don't know, interviews and just discussions that I've had. Right. Um, Cartier was there at the advent of like the wristwatch, you know, in the early 1900s, late uh, 1800s. In fact, you know, it can be argued that uh, they designed like the first wristwatch or one of the first wristwatches. And, you know, Cartier has these iconic designs, you know, like Santos, um, the Tank Centre, Tank Normal, all these type of things. And a lot of these designs are 100 years old right now. Yeah. And if you look at a tank from 100 years ago versus a new tank right now, they actually look quite similar. Right. And the fact that a design can stay relevant for a hundred plus years is really amazing in my opinion. Yeah. That staying power is impressive to say the least. Um, are there any watches that have shot up in value that have surprised you? 
Like, and I don't mean that like to imply that they're bad and that they're priced out of the wazoo, but just mean along the lines of unpredictability. I mean, honestly, we're in this age right now that I think the fact that we've also been at home for over a year because of COVID, like people are just online looking for cool shit to buy, to be honest. Yeah. And I think the prices for like everything have like shot up, you know? Yeah. Um, If you want to talk about, uh, you know, Rolex, obviously any new Rolex, I mean, everything is basically worth over retail, you know? Rolex dealers are like printing money right now. Um, You know, a Daytona back in the day when they were retailed at eight or nine grand, they would sell for like 12. I mean, now they're going for like double retail. Any new Patek Philippe, double retail, triple retail, maybe quadruple even. Yeah. And then talking about like pre-owned or used, you know, people have started seeing the merits, which I saw a long time ago about Cartier and they're collecting these things like nine, mid nineties, like these limited edition Santos Dumont's like the platinum one with that salmon dial. That seems to be a darling of the Instagram crowd. I sure. saw one, you know, these were always like $10,000. Okay. I saw one on Chrono 24 listed for like 65,000 or something. It was like ridiculous. Wow. And this watch I feel like from the teens to that price now, it, this happened maybe within 18 months is incredible. Wow. What are you wearing right now, by the way? I actually don't have a watch on my wrist, but it's oh. on my desk. It's this little <laughs> oh. tiny Cartier here. It's a little uh, platinum tank. Oh, that's I cool. I made a post on Instagram about. So. Nice. Nice. Well, you know, it's kind of funny. We've talked about sort of three of your ventures we sort of glazed over the fact that you're a dealer yourself. <laughs> um, and you've said before that you just really want to sell nice things. So when you're a collector while existing as a seller, where does that ethos come from? Like, why are you driven by providing others with nice things when you could easily keep them for yourself? Well, obviously, uh, keeping everything nice for myself uh, requires a, uh, a large war chest that I unfortunately haven't accumulated yet. Right, right. Really, I I found that there's this, uh, I don't know, there's like this Indiana Jones component, if you will, of uh, one of the things that I think that drives most, or many dealers, I should say, is like the hunt, the hunt for like sure. the next thing, you know? And uh, that never ending like chase, I think is what gets a lot of people uh, going. And I know that's something that is something that drives like how I, you know, how I operate, you know? Well, given the quality you focus on, you've had several insanely good pieces in like new old stock condition. That yeah, I mean, one, one, one thing that uh, over the last couple of years, I feel like has become a focus for many collectors is it's not necessarily just about rarity. I feel like condition is possibly more important than that now. Yeah. And what I mean is, is, um, you know, you could have, I don't know, a, uh, any watch, let's just say a, um, a Rolex five, five, one, three, like a note eight sub yeah. from the 1960s to eighties. Right. You could have like a normal matte dial one, um, you know, which probably is in the low teens now, maybe a little bit higher, um, in normal condition, it could be worth 20 grand if it's like really nice. But like a new old stock example at auction, you know, might bring $50,000 or something. Yeah. People have become really, really focused on condition. 
And I think that might even be more important than rarity. I mean, we yeah. see that in we see that in like every type of collectible. Um, I recently rekindled a uh, you know rekindled a, a fondness for collecting I don't know like sports cards and like uh, baseball cards, basketball cards, which I was really into when I was a kid. Sure. And um, you know the prices are driven significantly by condition right now. Right. I don't know if you're familiar with any of that stuff, but you know, baseball cards or sports cards get graded right now by third-party companies, kind of like coins and banknotes do. So they get slabbed in like a piece of plastic and then they get assigned a numerical grade from one to 10, you know? And then you could have, I don't know, a 1989 Upper Deck Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card, right? That, you know, an ungraded one that looks mint to you and me, you know, might be 20 bucks. Uh, graded as a eight, it could be $40, uh, graded as a nine, it could be $250 and then graded as a 10, it could be $2,000. Wow. The discrepancy in pricing for minute, uh, differences in quality can be staggering. Well, and it's crazy too, because when I collected, I, you know, we all collected baseball cards back then. It's, I mean, we didn't like, oh no, we had the Beckett magazine and that yeah, was exactly. like it. And then, but aside from that, it was like really left up to the cutter. You know what I mean? Cause if your borders were jacked, then you were like, I mean, oh, even now, good. even now it's like that. Um, yeah. Centering is really important as you know. Right. So like the centering is often not perfect. Um, and then depending on what type of paper it is, when they cut it, if the card was on the corner, when they cut it, like the, the corner could be damaged, you know, there's all these permutations out there of why, why, uh, why a card is not perfect. So right. finding that true 10 out of 10 card is pretty difficult, you know? Yeah. It's crazy. You know, well, just to loop it back to watches, um, like I know that you had that 1931 reverso that was just like, so, so good. And then you even had the, uh, was it the Hoyer, right? The, the Monaco, that was that PVD cased uh, chronograph. Was there any particular watch that you've acquired that you were just over the moon about acquiring? Or are they all, is it just still just sort of that Indiana Jones thing? I mean, the chase is certainly the most compelling part of the, the equation to me. But, you know, there's certain watches that um, I'm more fond of than others. Um, it's not like a condition related thing, but I think I'm a very nostalgic person mm-hmm. and, uh, I like stories. I find that a lot of the watches that I keep are important to me and maybe me only just because I have some kind of personal story about them. Oh, cool. But, you know, like condition is obviously very important, but you know, the one, one of the watches that I feel maybe I'm the proudest to own in my collection would be one of the original like London crashes that Cartier made. Yeah, totally. They're very, um, very desirable and very rare. Yeah. Well, speaking of the crash, uh, what is sort of the overarching feeling when Kanye buys one? <laughs> was it kind of like a, you know, yay? Or was it more of an oh shit moment because it's now an Obtanium? I mean, it was like a weird thing. I mean, by then, I had already owned basically all the crashes that I own now. But it was just like, uh, you know, it was an interesting thing because... Obviously, uh, Kanye is really into design and, you know, um, from the little bits that you see, uh, you know, when he did his interview with David Letterman, he was wearing that 91 uh, Paris crash. And I remember, I think it was posted on the Internet first around Christmas time that year or whatever it was. 
and you know like the guy has a good taste in design you know and yeah. it's only natural that he would gravitate to interesting things and you know that's how that came about um it certainly um helped accelerate collectors and market demand for that model um but you know it wasn't unexpected i thought you know yeah well you've been a dealer on the scene for a long time like what are some of the key questions that you share with people when they're kind of like to validate a dealer so to speak when every third guy on instagram selling watches these days i think the first question before you even get into the details of the watch is is this person reputable or not and uh you know that's by reputation in terms of uh talking with your other friends hey has anybody done deals with this person you know do you have firsthand knowledge that hey uh i had a satisfactory dealing with them or not you know I, I think that's like the most important thing, even before you actually look at whatever a watch it is. Speaking of watches, if you haven't heard episode one of the Standard Age podcast, then let me tell you about my friend Tim Jackson. As owner of Passion Fine Jewelry, Tim and his team specialize in fine jewelry, as well as some of the finest independent watch brands available. I'm talking about Gronfeld, Habring, Kudoki, Roger Smith, Roman Gauthier, Sarpaneva, the list goes on. The staff at Passion Fine Jewelry is literally made up of friends and family, so you will feel right at home if and when you visit. If California is out of reach, you can absolutely email or call the shop and they'll get you sorted. Visit passionfinejewelry.com for more information. As you all know, I'm a huge fan of using the right product for the right job. And like many of you, I appreciate products with a story. That's why I drive a Volkswagen GTI. It's a hot hatch with heritage. It's also why I'm into specific watches like my Tudor Black Bay. And that's exactly why I'm a fan of the indie accessory brand Contonement. Contonement makes a utilitarian cloth they simply call a kerchief. It's smaller than a standard bandana, but larger than a handkerchief, which makes it ideal to tuck in a back pocket or use as a neckerchief. I always take one on a bike ride or have one with me as a backup face covering. Not only do these kerchiefs satisfy several functions, but they look great too. Each set features illustrations celebrating icons of product design like the Omega Speedmaster, the Fender Stratocaster, or my favorite, of course, a classic GTI. Follow them on Instagram at Contonement Co. That's C-A-N-T-O-N-M-E-N-T-C-O. Or visit them at Contonement.co. And use the code STANDARDH in all caps, no spaces, for 20% off of absolutely everything in their online shop. Now let's get back to the show. You work alone primarily, right? Or do you have a team with you now? Yeah, I mean, I have um, I have a couple uh, employees that work with me, but oh, mainly cool. in kind of administrative positions. And then like uh, the buying and selling and all that is obviously me. Nice. Yeah, cool. Well, I would imagine your network is like crazy strong. Is there, is there such thing as having too many clients when you're in your shoes? I mean, there can be. Um, you know, I find that most of my business comes from a, uh, a handful of uh, repeat customers. And, um, you know, they usually keep me quite busy. Um, certainly, uh, when I have the inventory and the time, you know, I love to expand my network of customers. Um, but you know, it's, uh, 
sometimes it's possible and sometimes it's not, you know? Yeah. What are some of the markers you use to sort of gauge your success each year? I mean, you know, for me, it's like, uh, this last year, obviously with us not being able to travel or whatever was really, uh, a change for me. Mm -hmm. It's hard. Like I don't really necessarily set goals and objectives every year. It's just kind of like, Hey, the ball gets rolling after Christmas. And then like, I'm always hustling. I'm on the road and I'm buying, I'm selling stuff. Um, I'm all stressed out or whatever. And then boom, it's like Christmas again, you know? Right. Right. I mean, it's like a never ending rat race. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, I can imagine. Um, I listened to your clubhouse a few weeks ago and the 5711 came up. Sure. What was sort of your initial reaction when they announced it's going to be discontinued or did you care? Indifference. Right. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. And, uh, I mean, I'll say that just because like I talked about in that, uh, in that, uh, chat or whatever you want to call it, you know, things get discontinued. Now models have, uh, the refresh cycles are getting shorter and shorter. And it's just a natural thing that happens. And a 5711 has been around for a long time. Yeah. And um, I mean, it's not that big of a deal. There's gonna, they're gonna come out with a new stainless steel time only Nautilus that looks 95, 98% the same. And it's just gonna be as hot as the 5711 was, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. Do you still have your 3939? I do have my 3939. That's, That's one of the ones that I think is a really special watch. It's so gorgeous. Yeah. Well, I just think the minute repeater, to me at least, is just such an awesome complication. And to me, I really feel like Patek does it the best. Like their tone or whatever you want to call it for their chime is, I don't to me, it's my favorite amongst... You know, I way. mean, it's interesting because the, the minute repeater as a complication is something that I think had completely useless in the modern age. Like it's really a, uh, you're just, there's a technical show off of like, you know, having the expertise to be able to manufacture a minute repeater and making it sound good and all that type of stuff. But there's no real practical use of this complication. Right. But at the same time, like the way I look at it is, even watches now have become kind of like redundant, you know, everybody has their smartphone with them, but it's uh, it's like a form of like an amusement, you know? Yeah. Like I imagine a guy like wearing a minute repeater and he's like wearing a suit, you know, doing whatever business job that he does. And then like when nobody's around, he flips that slide and it chimes and it's like, uh, it's an amusement, you know? It brings you like a three second long uh, break from uh, reality. And it's just kind of, uh, amusement it just makes you smile you know yeah and they're usually coupled with some of the best looking watches on the planet <laughs> so sure, <laughs> that's sure cool well if if we may can we talk about loop this sure what um so it's a new auction platform well why don't you describe it what what is loop this yeah so loop this is a uh it's a new auction website that um is launching very soon um, I don't know how quickly you post these podcasts. It might be launched or uh, already or not, but basically um, it is a hybrid model of being like an auction house, but doing everything like virtually and being able to work within shorter uh, time cycles and uh, being more optimized both for buyers and sellers, you know? 
So for those who've never done or experienced an auction before, what are the typical timelines of say like a Christie's, a Sotheby's, what have you? I mean, it just depends. I mean, uh, normally uh, the consignment period for an auction closes, um, I don't know, uh, a month and a half before the sale or two months, maybe even two and a half months before the sale. And then there's like a marketing period and the catalogs are out and then the auction, and then you get paid obviously after, you know? Right. So, the, um, you know, I think a decent turnaround time, if you're a consigner putting something at auction uh, and getting paid out, it could be 90, 90 days, 60 to 90 days. Uh, and that's assuming like a really optimum, uh, you know, assuming a really optimum timeline. Sure. And for us, like, um, you know, we want to be able to uh, agree to take a watch from somebody and get you paid within, you know, 30 days, maybe even less, you know, nice. depending on um, how much of a backlog there is. We're running daily auctions. Um, we'll start out with a handful a day. You know, we'll ramp up to uh, more, obviously. Um, but basically what we're doing is curating a uh what we think is a selection of watches that people are looking for and are interesting and noteworthy and worthy of uh, collecting or buying you know sure so they're going to be really focused on more of like an individual piece rather than like a themed auction like all sports yeah i mean we're not doing like it's not like hey this month we put out 500 lots on one day or something like that there's going to be something every day cool yeah that's awesome that sounds super fun yeah. Um, well, to reference your talking watches, which I obviously alluded to at the beginning of this conversation, um, you showed an MBNF, an HM5. Do you still have that watch? The only reason I bring it up is because it sort of hinted almost like you've got some vintage car knowledge, and I want to dig into that. Yeah, of course. I, mean, car I, guy? I love cars. Um, vintage cars are not like vintage watches in that they're very complicated to uh, maintain and, you know, uh, whatever, but I like cars. I mean, I'm definitely a car person. Sure. Um, I have a, uh, 66 911. No kidding. And it's been in restoration for a long time. Hopefully it'll come back, but you know, cars like that, you know, when you go out and you decide to drive it, it's like the weather has to be perfect, like whatever. And, you know, the stars have to be aligned for you to have an optimal uh, experience. Sure. And um, I'm, I definitely appreciate the design of vintage cars um, when they're working great, great fun, but, you know, they are somewhat cumbersome. So I think, you know, maybe my interests are more towards contemporary or more, contemporary cars yeah totally what color is the 911 it's a light ivory so it's like a white color one. Oh, beautiful nice who's doing the work is it in the bay or is it elsewhere no no so um my buddy aaron hats who has a company called uh, flat six um he's very well known for restoring early 911s um he is handling the mechanical work and he is in uh minneapolis area and then David Trichel uh, has this place called Zero to Sixty Garage. He's very well known for like paint and body work, and he's handling that. Oh, amazing! That's awesome. What was your first car? My first car was a 1988 Cadillac Seville. No kidding. 
Yeah, STS actually. It was like, uh, I don't know if you remember the early 80s Seville's, they had that really big hump on the back. Yeah. It was after that one. So it was like a very small compact car with a big V8. Well, and I remember if I'm not mistaken, I think it was Cadillac. It may have been Oldsmobile, but they had the tire like mounted to the back of the trunk. That was a, well, so the uh, Seville, that was the earlier one. I didn't drive it. Okay. Yeah. My dad like loves Cadillacs. Yeah. Grew up like as a Cadillac household. No kidding. The hand-me-down that I got was this uh, 88 uh, Seville that was blue colored, like a two-tone blue. The readouts inside, everything was digital. It was a real like 80s time capsule, you know? That's incredible. So what do you drive? What's your daily right now? Um, I, it's like for the last many years, um, I've really been into like Mercedes G-Wagons. Yeah. I drive a a G550. Nice. So when travel opens back up, where, where do you intend on going first? I mean, it just depends what the situation like around the world is like, you know, I mean, my usual spots, um, I travel all the time normally and, um, you know, alternating between, uh, Europe and Hong Kong are the most frequent destinations. So probably like Geneva, um, like Switzerland, Italy, and Hong Kong. And, um, you know, it's still not clear how those countries are going to be about travel. So right. it's not easy to make any plans yet. You know, yeah. um, a lot of the, the traveling revolves around shows or auctions or whatever. And, you know, everything's still up in the air now, obviously, you know, yeah. Totally. Um, as you know, in Hong Kong or in Asia, the Asian countries in general have been like super, super strict. Like they're basically not letting any non-citizens into the countries right now without right. like a really important reason to be there. And then you have mandatory 14 day quarantines. So, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, I just, I, uh, I will be happy to be able to travel again. I mean, I, uh, my wife and I, we took a week off and went to Hawaii, like recently, just being able to do that was really like a luxury. And I feel really grateful to have been able to do it, you know? Well, I know you're somewhat of a foodie. Yep. What's still left on the bucket list? You know, um, similar to what we've been discussing about watches, um, you know, it's not, I think for me now, like the food that really interests me is not necessarily like super gourmet ingredients or anything, but just like interesting preparations of like high quality stuff, you know? Yeah. Sure. What's your, like your, your most memorable meal prior to COVID? Like what was like the last insane meal that you ate? I mean, I, I was in Paris not too long ago before COVID and I ate at a lot of like nice places while I was in Paris. Right. And, um, you know, that's always like an experience. Um, but I don't know, like being of the same age group as me, I think, I don't know if you can relate to this, but you know, I used to be able to pound down like a 20 course meal and drink and do whatever and feel fine. But then sometimes now I'm just like, I can barely finish, you know? Oh, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> like in my twenties, it's like, dude, come on, let's go to like KFC after this or something. And then <laughs> now it's like, I'm so full. I can barely get home. Oh my God. That's crazy. But in so, I mean, we did like, um, I, I, being in the Bay area, they do a lot of these kind of, uh, outdoor like dining experiences in Napa, mm-hmm. like uh, where a winery will pair up with like a famous chef. 
and they'll do like kind of, uh, you know, weekends, like either lunch or dinner on the farm. Yeah. And those things I've gone to a few, they've been quite nice. Yeah. Oh, great. That's awesome. Was there anything that you've done sort of for the first time during COVID that you think you'll remain doing after? It's been such a long, uh, such a long and weird journey, I'll say, that I feel like I've gone through multiple cycles of certain things. Like, I, I'm sure most people can relate to this, but I went through this phase of like being a uh, exercise freak. And okay. then for like six months, I was like doing like, I don't know, 10 miles to 20 miles a day on like a bike in the house, you know, like a stationary bike. And, um, you know, suddenly just like stopping after a while <laughs> or whatever, or suddenly like, you know what, I got to like try to eat vegan or gluten-free for a while. So <laughs> I've gone through many cycles of different things. Yeah. Nothing has really stuck, to be honest. That's funny. I mean... Yeah. Well, that's fun. Well, listen, man, this has been a lot of fun. Um, like I said, I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to promote or talk about? No, I mean, uh, I think we've covered a lot of uh, different things. Yeah. And um, yeah. Cool, man. Well, hey, listen, thanks so much for taking the time. And um, yeah, I'll keep you posted on everything. Of course. Sounds good, man. Okay. Okay. Chats hit me up later anytime. Thank you so much. See you. Of course. All right. Okay, bye bye. Big thanks goes to Eric once again for taking the time to chat. I really enjoyed the conversation. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show. And while you're there, if you don't mind rating and even leaving a short review, it helps way more than you think. Please give Standard H a follow on Instagram at Standard H underscore, as well as the podcast page at Standard H underscore podcast. Shout out to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for the theme track as well as the clear audio for the noise-canceling headphones. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Standard Age Podcast in two weeks' time. Thanks again for listening.